This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. When am I going to take control and get a hold of my emotions? Why does it always seem to hit me in the middle of the night? It's just a fantasy. It's not the real thing. Sometimes a fantasy is all you need. In February of 1976, Martin Scorsese's cinematic masterpiece, Taxi Driver, arrived in theaters. Set in New York City in the mid-1970s, amid all the urban decay, crime, and corruption, the film follows a war veteran, Travis Bickle, as he prowls the city streets at the mercy of his own deteriorating mental state. When Taxi Driver was screened at the Cannes Film Festival, it was booed, decried for its graphic violence, language, and depiction of underage prostitution. But the unparalleled genius of the people involved with crafting the film and the undeniable cultural significance of the piece would quickly drown out the naysayers, and Taxi Driver would assume its rightful place as one of the finest films ever made. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. I go all over. I take people to the Bronx, Brooklyn. I take them to Harlem. I don't care. Don't make no difference to me. You also had Taxi Driver. You had um, Saturday Night Fever. You had all these films featuring uh, characters that were lost, that were truly lonely. People were going through a lot. It was a tough economical time. It was a tough time coming out of that war. It was a tough time in New York where a lot of these films were um, set. Specifically, Travis Bickle, to answer your question, Travis was the epitome of lonely. He's battling insomnia. He wants to be seen. He wants to be heard. But as the as the story goes on, we see him reaching out to people, sometimes in desperate ways, just trying to connect, just trying to be seen, just trying to matter. That's Jeff Marshall, film critic and host of the podcast On the Craft. He's also our resident movie expert. You may remember him from season two, where he gave us his thoughts on the classic film The Exorcist. There were other powerful, disturbing, and important films released in that same time frame, movies that would have a palpable effect on the public at large. Saturday Night Fever, a story about working-class disillusionment told through the lens of Italian-American young adults in Brooklyn. It was a massive hit and brought disco music and disco dancing to the world, while also deftly examining the social tensions, desperation, and lack of opportunity that many American youths endured in the 70s. It was also a breakthrough performance for a young John Travolta. Every time you mention Frank Jr., you got to cross yourself. He's a priest, ain't he? Father Frank Jr., your brother. Your mother doesn't have too much to cross yourself about these days. You're so jealous of Frank Jr. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey! Hey! Where are you going? Hey, the shirt! Watch the shirt, stupid! Okay. Basta! All right, come on. 
One pork chop! One! Hey, Frank! It's disgusting, right? Sick. We just washed the hair. Yeah. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and you, and you hit it. He hits my hair. Then there were horror films, like the supernatural revenge thriller Carrie, the first of many books from the great Stephen King to be adapted to the big screen. story of a secretly adopted child who turns out to be the Antichrist. Damien, I love you! Look at me, Damien! It's all for you! Now, this isn't me trying to make some thinly veiled connection between Berkowitz's crime spree and popular media. I'm a Gen Xer. I remember how ridiculous it was when my parents were warned that Beavis and Butthead would make me burn my house down or that the hip-hop music that I loved would turn me into a cop killer. But I also wasn't taking orders from a talking dog, which is to say that if a psychological disorder is already present, maybe that person is more susceptible to societal influence than others. But I'm not a doctor. Welcome back to The Devil Within, A Season in Hell. You're listening to Episode 4, Sometimes a Fantasy. Specifically, Travis Bickle, to answer your question, Travis was the epitome of lonely. He's battling insomnia. He wants something that will take long hours to do, And what else did we talk about earlier? He wants to be seen. He wants to be heard. So what is he going to do? He's going to put himself in a job where people are paying him to give him rights. He's going to be around people all the time. So that means I can be seen. I can be heard. I can matter. I can contribute. But as as the story goes on, we see him reaching out to people, sometimes in desperate ways, just trying to connect, just trying to be seen, just trying to matter. And that is ultimately what I take away every time I watch Taxi Driver, which, by the way, for anyone who hasn't seen it, that's not a film you watch once. You need to watch that film nine to 12 times to see all the things that are in there. There are so many things that Scorsese has done, uh, and he's so good at using the camera to show you that you're going to miss because there's sometimes they're so quick. But um, also De Niro with his his character choices, and, and if I may say, Harvey Keitel and, and Jodie Foster, phenomenal job. And they're in maybe a handful of scenes. 98% of the scenes are focused on Travis, and yet we have one scene that's just featuring Harvey and uh, Jodie Foster with them dancing. It's, it's an unbelievable scene. Unbelievable scene, and Jodie Foster's only, I think, 13 years old when she films that movie. But um, looking at it, 
from a standpoint of where we were in 1976, like I had said earlier, with uh, Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever or even uh, Sissy Spacek and Carrie, you have people that are just trying to find their way in life. They're lost. They're in a big city that doesn't give a shit about them because they don't even care about themselves. They're sure as hell not going to care about other people. And all they're trying to do is matter. Virginia Voskarichian had just gotten off the subway. She was a 20-year-old student at Columbia University in Manhattan. It was a short walk from the subway stop to her house. It was around 7.30 p.m. on March 8, 1977. Although spring was around the corner, late winter still brings cold weather in the Northeast. Plus, it was already dark, so Virginia was walking quickly. Her path home took her through the private neighborhood of Forest Hills, which consisted of single-family homes and eerily empty streets. She had undoubtedly heard of the shooting death of Christine Freund six weeks ago. That crime scene was less than a block away from where she got off the train. Then, suddenly, in front of a beautiful Tudor home on Dartmouth Street, Virginia was approached by an armed man He stopped just short of Virginia, crouched while raising a weapon in front of him with both hands, and fired. Virginia instinctively raised her school books in front of her face in an attempt to shield herself from the attack. But her books were no match for the power of the Bulldog 44 caliber revolver. She was shot in the face and died instantly. Police responded to a report of a mugging on Dartmouth Street and found Virginia's body in the bushes in front of a well-manicured lawn. The cab driver who called in the mugging claimed that he saw a white man with dark hair fleeing the scene. 300 New York police officers looking for a man they call the 44 caliber killer today have a little more to go on. Jim Kilpatrick has the story. He was generally described as white, between 20 and 35 years old. Police described the killer as clean-shaven, with dark, wavy hair, high cheekbones, and a sensuous mouth. At a news conference, New York police depict him as a woman-hating killer, between 25 and 32, with a good athletic build, weighing around 165 pounds. The drawing is considered important because the description comes from eyewitnesses who were at the scene but not under fire. Previous sketches came from frightened victims. Quite obviously, uh, we can't take that sketch and go out and pick out the person we're looking for. Uh, But it it helps us in the sense that uh, uh, a person uh, in the general public or some friend of his may be able to come forward and say, this looks like the man we're looking for. Authorities say they cannot determine the killer's nationality or ethnic background. And even with the new drawing, police would not say they are any closer to finding the killer, only that they have a better description. That's right. The cab driver who witnessed Berkowitz fleeing the scene of a homicide was apparently close enough to describe his mouth as sensuous. Now, that's obviously a very descriptive and specific adjective to use when describing someone's face, and the police sketch artists had a field day with it, giving Berkowitz plump, heart-shaped lips and high, angelic cheekbones. David Berkowitz clocked out of his shift at the post office 
at 5 p.m. on March 8th. It was a Tuesday, cold and gray, but with the faintest promise of spring on the early evening air. As usual, David went home and prepared for the hunt. It had been six full weeks since his last successful outing, and he decided that maybe he should revisit the scene of his previous triumph. Forest Hills, Queens. Circling the familiar streets, looking for signs, David decided to, once again, call an audible. Although she wasn't sitting in a parked car, the sign was unmistakable. He clocked her as soon as she emerged from the steps of the subway station. Young and pretty, with dark brown hair to her shoulders, this had to be the first sign. Well, he would know soon enough. He rounded a corner. Then, like a miracle, his hopes were confirmed. A parking spot opened up just as he turned onto the next block. By the time the young woman had crossed into the loneliness of Forest Hills, he would be able to intercept her path from less than half a block over. When you live in a city of 8 million people, it's exceedingly rare to find yourself completely alone on a sidewalk, regardless of what time it is. The solitude is discomforting. It feels like something's off. Were those the thoughts going through Virginia's mind? Was it somehow oddly reassuring when she saw a man walking towards her? Maybe. All we know is that the situation was perfect for David Berkowitz. Rarely had one of his hunts produced such a perfect scenario so early in the evening. Unsuspecting victim, no witnesses, easy getaway. When he was a few paces in front of Virginia, he stopped, drew his pistol, assumed his customary crouched position he learned in the army, and fired through the desperate shield of textbooks Virginia raised to cover her face. He didn't wait to watch her fall. He just turned and ran for his car and the anonymity of 295 North to the Throg's Neck Bridge that spanned the East River, connecting Queens with the Bronx on mainland New York. Two days later, on March 10, 1977, Mayor Abraham Beam would announce that the same gun, a Charter Arms Bulldog 44 caliber revolver, was used in the slaying of Donna Loria, Berkowitz's first shooting, and the most recent Voskarician attack. I know that I'm not usually known for any public exhibitions of temper, but I want you to know I'm damned angry. During the last few weeks, New Yorkers have been subjected to a series of criminal outrages which are unmatched in recent memory. The press ran with it, and suddenly there was a new dimension to the depravity of New York City. A macabre mascot that represented the worst of humanity. An honest-to-God boogeyman. He was, for the time being, the 44 caliber killer. But how did he get here? And what made him continue? Beyond the alleged influence of the demon-possessed black lab named Harvey, what makes Berkowitz and others like him tick? We explored what has been called the primary crisis of his life in an earlier episode. But obviously, there have been countless children 
of difficult, adoptive upbringings that haven't become vicious serial killers. Cases like the Son of Sam are an incredibly rare aberration. So how much blame can be placed on his childhood? You remember Seth Menachem from an earlier episode. My knowledge of serial killers is limited to Netflix documentaries and what I've learned theoretically in school. I've never seen a serial killer, as far as I know. Well, you're talking about stacks of complicated information thrust upon a vulnerable psyche. If the reality is that he already had a a pretty fragile psyche and that there was a, a predisposition for psychosis or schizophrenia, and you're piling this on top of someone who already is struggling with the construct of the world, well, then you, you really are ripe for a psychotic break, which is, I think, what we saw with David Berkowitz. But here's someone who we know is a fragile psyche. We know there's a huge amount of trauma. He goes into the military. He uses LSD, which we also know if you have a predisposition towards schizophrenia and psychosis, that that could be the unleashing of it, right? That there's, again, a possibility that had all of these incidents not happened, had he not used LSD, that maybe we could have kept it at bay. But he used LSD, and there's a possibility that now we're seeing this prodromal phase of schizophrenia where he's starting to hide maybe hearing voices or there's, you know, I'm not entirely sure if he felt shame around it and was hiding it what we call egocentonic and egodystonic, this idea that that we, we believe the symptoms, we believe what we're being told and the delusions and hallucinations feel real to us and therefore they are real. Or we understand that it's a product of a mental health issue and we want to fight it. We understand that we're fighting with reality. And so I think for him, I can't tell, but it sounds like he believed the delusions and hallucinations were real. These are egocentonic symptoms. He latches on to not only religion, but sort of fringe religion, which has more fantasy elements and Satan and the devil. And and so I think it allowed his psyche to just grab on to sort of all these wild ideas, which he then somehow got put into this idea that the dog was the dog Satan. I, I don't know what the story is, but the dog was instructing him to do certain things. That's a common schizophrenic symptom, not necessarily to harm someone else, but to believe that someone is sending you messages. And let's, for a moment, tackle this notion of a demon taking control of a dog and issuing commands to David, imploring him to kill. According to Berkowitz, the demon in question was around 6,000 years old. That number, 6,000 years, corresponds with the evangelical belief in the age of the earth. It's based on equations related to genealogical records pulled directly from the Bible that supposedly lead all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it's been determined by the more fundamentalists of the believers that it has been roughly 6,000 years since that first week that God got everything going. And now remember, it was only a few years before the killings began that Berkowitz converted to a decidedly strict sect of evangelical Christianity. It was likely that he adopted the New Earth creationist beliefs as well as acknowledging that eternal struggle between the angels and demons of the King James Bible. It's the power of Christ. 
Now, the history of demonic possession in humans goes back thousands of years. But what about animals? Is there any precedent? Turns out, there is. First, there are some who believe that the serpent who tempted Eve in Genesis was actually possessed by Satan himself. The argument against that is that the serpent was actually Satan in the form of a serpent, rather than your everyday serpent who was at the wrong place at the wrong time and became an unwilling temporary vessel for the fallen angel. But then we have the Nazarene, Jesus himself, as it's recounted in the book of Matthew, who, after performing an exorcism, cast a legion of demons into a vast herd of pigs who were then driven down a steep bank to drown in the Sea of Galilee. So again, there is biblical precedent for someone new to the faith like Berkowitz to support these realizations and believe them to be true. But was that enough? There was obviously some mental instability that made David more susceptible than most to these flights of religious fancy, but we seem to be missing a prime mover in his descent towards madness and murder. His conversion to Christianity was the spark, but what was the fuel? As we learned in season one of The Devil Within, kids like Tommy Sullivan are introduced to the idea of the power of the enemies of the Lord and their ability to possess your body and mind by the very church that is tasked with protecting them from their evils. Judaism, in which Berkowitz was brought up, has a vastly different view regarding Satan as opposed to Christianity, so the prospect of falling under the influence of the ruler of hell was relatively new to him. To be fair, Berkowitz never explicitly claimed that it was Satan that had taken up residence in Harvey the Lab. But given the supposed age of the demon and the level of destruction he was demanding of David, it seems likely that if it wasn't Satan, it was at least one of the top guys. And where, people wondered, could Berkowitz have investigated and discussed his plight? Well, we need to go back to Untermeyer Park, the Carr brothers, and a satanic cult called The Process. For the world can be yours, and the blood of men can be yours to spill as you please, and you can have your pleasure of the world through violence and the wielding of the sword, and your lust can strike upon the face of the land, taking whatever it desires and discarding the empty husks when you've sucked them dry. War and violence are your heritage. Satan's army is ready in the field, and slaughter is the order of the day, for I, Satan, am master of the world, and my law is death. The Process Church of Final Judgment was a religious group that began in 1966. Two members of the Church of Scientology started an offshoot, which eventually became a separate organization called The Process. By the early 1970s, the church had spread across Europe, the United States, and Canada. But that sudden, massive growth came with a price. Rumors began about ritual murders and connections to satanic groups. These rumors reached a fever pitch when Charles Manson, leader of the cult known as The Family, implied that he was directly connected to the process during the trial for the Tate-LaBianca murders 
for which he and his followers would be found guilty. The bad press that followed placed a tremendous amount of strain on the founding members of the process, both emotionally and financially. The church fractured, with one of the founders leaving entirely and going into the world of business, and the other continuing the church under several different names, many of which actually operate to this day. There was widespread speculation that the process, or at least one of its offshoots, the cult-like group called the Children, had ties to the mysterious Ordo Templi Orientis, or the Order of the Temple of the East, a secret society that has been linked to occult activity, satanic worship, I mean, even the Illuminati. The reason I bring this up? The Process Church offshoot organization called The Children had their headquarters in Untermeyer Park and counted among their members brothers Michael and John Carr and David Berkowitz. I was uh, lonely. I had no real companionship and uh, and I was invited to a party one day. I, I went to the party. This was in the Bronx. Uh, a couple of guys said, uh, hey, listen, uh, we uh, you, you're looking for a girl or something. You're looking for a good good time. Uh, we, we got some uh, friends that meet in the park. So why don't you come by? So I went over to the park and, and uh, we went deep in the woods. They had a small fire going and, and a lot of people were, were drinking. They were singing. A lot of people were uh, chanting. And uh, oh, I said, oh, what, what's this? You know, I began to meet some of the people and they says, uh, well, you know, we're pagans. We're witches. We just uh, come out here to have a good time. But they were the ones that introduced me to Satanism. We had uh, the circles, we had uh, the pentagrams that they made right there in the woods in the high weeds in the swamp area. And uh, we would just call upon uh, powers, call upon these angels that later on I found out that they were really the demons we were calling upon. But I would do these rituals and meditate and uh, you could feel the surge of energy come upon you. you uh, things began to change within me. If you look at a map, Yonkers is only about an hour drive from the woods of North Jersey, an area known to be a hotbed of satanic activity since the early 1970s, and that would descend into the hysteria of the satanic panic with the Tommy Sullivan murder-suicide that we covered in Season 1. Detective Paul Hart thought he had seen everything. Then this veteran New Jersey officer saw how a suburban teenager murdered and mutilated his own mother. I believe that evil will once again rise and conquer the love of God. If this pact is to your approval, sign below. Just barely 14 years old, Tommy Sullivan had written this contract with the devil before he butchered his mother with his Boy Scout knife. The murder took place in the basement of the Sullivan family home. The satanic group, or groups, that flourished in North Jersey were either very disorganized or very adept at keeping a low profile because they were never formally identified by any name, group, or affiliation with larger entities. They were, in fact, only rumored to exist until the Sullivan case exploded into the zeitgeist. In the years following the Son of Sam murders, investigative journalist Maury Terry desperately tried to make some kind of concrete connection between Berkowitz 
and satanic worship. Going as far away as North Dakota to investigate one of the Carr brothers, as well as probing the rumored covens of Satanists in the woods just across the Hudson River from Yonkers on the Jersey side. Well, the top grossing film of 1976, which also won Best Picture, was Rocky. Um, Sylvester Stallone wrote it, uh, turned out a lot of money to not be in it. Uh, They really wanted Robert Redford for that part uh, and offered him large sums of money to bow out of that project and he chose not to he stuck to his guns and uh, ended up becoming the lead actor but that was the story of somebody that had been looked over wasn't living the life necessarily that he wanted to live um, and along came this opportunity for him to make a name for himself to remove himself from the situation that he was in in order to make a better life for himself so all I want to do is go to distance See, and that bell rings, and I'm still standing. I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. After nine weeks in release, on January 26, 1977, Rocky reached number one on the nationwide box office charts. And there it stayed, the movie mirroring the unlikely success of its protagonist until March 30th, when it would be dethroned by the disaster thriller Airport 77, a film about a hijacked jetliner that makes an emergency landing in the ocean. From there, the movie quickly becomes a deep sea rescue. This is Airport 77. Drown in here. Nobody is going to drown. The plane is pressurized. Have you radioed for help? Radios don't work underwater, but our course has been tracked on radar, and they know exactly where we went down. What'll we do? Calm down. We run out of air for I said calm down! An unforgettable adventure, an all-star cast. Suffice it to say that Airport 77's stay atop the box office charts lasted a week, and then Rocky reclaimed the top spot on April 6th. Ten days later, on April 16th, 1977, 20-year-old tow truck driver Alexander Esau from Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan and 18-year-old college student Valentina Suriani from the Bronx decided to see what all the fuss was about. After catching a late show of Rocky at a nearby theater, they parked on the service road of the Hutchinson Parkway about a block from Valentina's house. They wanted some alone time. Despite the seemingly non-stop reports of the 44 caliber killer targeting young people in cars, girls with dark hair especially. These kids chose to tempt fate. David had been working on it for over a month, trying to get it just right. Ever since his successful hunt back in March and the press gave him the nickname the 44 caliber killer, he found that name to be uninspired, unworthy. So he set to introducing himself. Who knows how many drafts he went through or how long he'd had the letter ready to go. All we know is that he abandoned the target-rich borough of Queens 
for the familiar grounds of the Bronx. He'd been slowly awaiting the signs as he scanned the area where he first struck with his trusty bulldog revolver, where he had gathered the blood of the young and beautiful Donna Loria in Pelham Bay and found the Hutchinson Parkway a convenient escape route back to Yonkers. And here he was again. But it was getting late, nearly three in the morning on April 17th. He'd almost decided to call it a night and head home without his trophy, as he had done so many other nights. But all those failures just made the successes sweeter. He decided to expand his circle to include the service road just beyond the parkway. And there they were. He passed them once and caught a tantalizing glimpse of a young woman with long, dark hair sitting in a car with, in all likelihood at this hour, her boyfriend. David felt his pulse quicken. He let the adrenaline take over as he basked in the confidence that a parking spot would surely manifest. And he was right. We know the rest. With all the signs having presented themselves, David got out of his yellow Ford Galaxy and approached the young couple who were completely unaware of the danger that was just around the corner. Berkowitz approached from the passenger side of Esau's vehicle, drew his weapon, and assumed his customary crouched position. He shot into the vehicle four times, hitting both occupants in the head, Alexander twice and Valentino once. Valentina was pronounced dead at the scene, while Alexander survived for several hours before dying at a local hospital. He never regained consciousness and was therefore unable to give police any idea what had happened. But, as usual, evidence was left behind in the form of bullets. 44 caliber bullets that were determined to be fired from the same bulldog revolver that was used in the Loria shooting and the Voscarician shooting. But this time, David lingered a few moments. This was very out of character, as he normally fired and instantly fled the scene. But he wanted to leave something for law enforcement. For the captain of the NYPD's 15th Homicide Division in particular. A man named Joseph Borelli. Borelli had been in the news in the weeks leading up to the Esau Suriani shooting, ever since it was announced that the city had a serial killer on their hands. It seemed to Berkowitz that Borelli was the right man to reach out to. The letter he had been working so hard on was addressed to Captain Borelli. Dear Captain Joseph Borelli, I am deeply hurt by you calling me a women hater. I'm not, but I am a monster. I am a son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up in the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I feel like an outsider. 
I'm on a different wavelength than everyone else. Programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention or police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or I'll keep coming out of my way or you will die. I am a monster. Beezabub. It should be. Behemoth. I love to hunt. Prowl in the streets looking for fair game. It's just tasty meat. The women and queens are prettiest of all. It must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt my life. want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong in this earth. Return me to the yahoos. To the people of queens. I love you. And and I wanna wish you uh, wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. For now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang 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 bang. Ah! Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. Police withheld the letter and its contents from the press for several days to allow time for their criminal psychiatrists to develop a profile on the person who wrote it. In May of 1977, the authorities released a preliminary psychological profile of the killer. And their initial conclusions were alarming. Believing the killer to be psychotic, police have their psychologists working on the case as well. The victim that's selected usually satisfies something on a fantasy level. Uh, a punishing mother uh, could be a wife, and he selects somebody that has certain qualities, and so every time he uh, commits the crime against a person that has this thing, he's satisfying this basic need of getting back at the original uh, individual that he had difficulty with. The citizens of New York City were cautioned to be on the lookout for a neurotic loner, likely to be suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, who possibly believes he's possessed by a demon. While detectives and forensic psychologists were working around the clock in their efforts to decipher any hidden messages that might be lurking in this strange and sophomoric missive. There were several misspellings and creative grammatical flourishes. It was believed that Berkowitz, like many serial killers before and after him, delighted in his newfound power to control the press, confuse the police, and terrorize the populace. But most importantly for Berkowitz, the world would now know him as he knew himself. The Son of Sam. But I am a monster. I am a son of Sam. 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 On the next episode of The Devil Within, A Season in Hell, Berkowitz sends a second letter, this time to a popular journalist, and it contains a chilling warning to the city. 
Plus, we meet the team of detectives tasked with tracking down the killer. That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within, A Season in Hell is a Cloud 10 Media production. Recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.